Welcome to Ag Matters, covering positive agriculture stories from across Alaska on Big Cabbage Radio. Your host, Cody Buse for Ag Matters Radio. Today we have Steve Rice on the line from 907 Livestock. Welcome to the program. Hey, good afternoon, Cody. Hey, so tell us first all, where, where are you guys located at in the state? Uh, we're in the beautiful Tanana Valley and specifically Chino Hot Springs Road. Off of, or just outside of Fairbanks, Alaska. Oh, terrific. Well, that's one of my favorite spots. As you drive out of town there, you start seeing some fields, and I don't know if you guys are tucked farther back in, but it always does my heart good to, to see fields anywhere, to be honest. It is. Those are the old Ginninger potato fields you see as you drive out there. We're tucked away a little bit behind some woods, but some uh, beautiful fields in the summer. Awesome. Nice lush green grass for pasturing cows. Well, great. That's what we want to talk about today. I have to tell you, I was just, uh, well, it was back in, oh boy, it might have been in November, but that was the last time I was up your guys' way, and I was actually picking up some some reindeer from Copper Kettle Farm, a rancher out there, and anyway, that, that was a fun operation to see and pick up some nice quality reindeer from them. I'm, I'm not sure there's any agriculture in the state that isn't unique in their own aspect. Yeah, I like to tell people that a lot too, is that there's more diversity than you realize. And we have, yeah, we, we might not be go, growing corn and soybeans, but we have a lot to offer in the in the way of unique products. We sure do. Well, awesome. Well, why don't you guys tell us a little bit about 907 Livestock, maybe how you guys got started. So 907 Livestock, like many farms, were family owned, veteran operated. It started, well, it started before I started. My wife's from Delta Junction in high school. Her teacher was the FFA advisor, got involved, got her involved in FFA, gave her a, a heifer calf, and, well, 40-some years later, we're still raising cattle. So once my wife and I bought property and started a family, she wanted to raise her children, raise the livestock, so got a couple rescue goats, had some kids there, then decided to go to the meat side of it, got some boar goats. And when our oldest daughter, who's now one of our business part partners, Michaela Anderson, was a good seven years old on Christmas Eve, or Christmas Day, sorry, she got to pull a kid from a, a young boar goat that we bought that wasn't supposed to be bred. And we've been elbow deep ever since, no pun intended. Okay, I'm a dad, pun intended. But anyway, so we started with goats, did goats for quite a few years. Then we moved to cattle, which was really our wife's or my wife's favorite. Raised the kids doing cattle. Then our, we always pride ourselves in saying we'd raise anything but pigs. And then my uh, <laughs> middle daughter batted her baby blue eyes at us and wanted a pig just to be different from her sister. Then we got involved in pigs and had cattle, and we did a lot of artificial insemination and still do. And that's one of our focuses at 907 Livestock is providing some different genetics here in the state as well as improving our genetic lines. So ever since then, we've been raising cattle and, and swine. And then my oldest daughter, Michaela, got married, hence the last name Anderson, to her husband, John. He joined the farm, and the other kids have grown up and 
moved off the farm but come back and help. And now we're on to the next generation, so the fourth generation of farmers here with our one-year-old granddaughter. And we're still raising cattle, mainly black Angus, but we have introduced some Wagyu genetics into there. And then our, our swine have traditionally been more of the show swine variety of Yorkshire and Hampshire varieties, but we've bred Berkshire as well. Well, awesome. That that gives us a lot to kind of focus in on, quite the legacy. And and of course, as a as a uh, FFA advisor here in Palmer, that I, I couldn't think of a better story. Uh, we try to think that, you know, when we're teaching kids this, that they, they can make a career out of it and a life out of it. it they certainly can. The, the FFA certainly isn't as strong up here as it is down in the, the Matsu Valley, but we've worked with a lot of FFA students. We raised our kids through the 4-H programs, had one daughter who was a state officer in the FFA program as well. They're both just wonderful organizations. The kids just get a lot out of them, a lot of leadership competencies. And every once in a while, we find a gem in the, in the bunch, and they continue their ag education through the rest of their lives. Yeah, and I was at, I was at the Tanana Valley State Fair this fall, and I'm sure we saw some of your genetics at the fair. Is that correct? Most certainly on the uh, swine side of things. Since since we focus more on on marbling and and meat quality on our on our cattle, they tend not to be of the show variety. Mm-hmm. We've had a couple go through the fair and do well, but typically we steer the exhibitors away from our steers and onto some people with better show quality animals but yeah on the pig side you probably i would say half of the pigs you saw there were probably from our genetics yeah well they were good looking pigs that that brings up an interesting fact i think it'd be it's be neat from our listeners to get your perspective on you know uh show quality versus market quality and kind of why they're why they diverge a little bit yeah and that's something we always try to teach the kids and our consumers you know on swine those show quality animals, they're, they're really going for massive muscle and leanness. That doesn't necessarily translate to the best eating experience. Although none of our customers have ever complained about the quality of the meat, there's significant difference. Some of our swine would put out a 10 inch, we've even had 12 inch loin eyes and only carrying a half an inch back fat. You know, when you're talking bacon on those animals, they're 60, 70% lean, which for bacon is not what we normally equate with bacon. Mm-hmm. You know, what bacon typically is about 40% lean, 50% lean, and 50 to 60% fat. And you get bacon out of our show quality animals, and, and they're just much more lean and, and less fat to them. You know, and the, then the hams are another thing. Genie that down there at Delta Meat would always like to give us a hard time about our hams because <laughs> we'd throw 20, 22-pound hams on a 250, 270-pound animal. And commercially, that's just not viable. You know, if you go to the store, most of those hams are 13-pound hams. You don't really see 22-pound hams out there very often. For individual consumers, that works just great. But if that was a commercial market, it just wouldn't work. So, yeah, they're much different animals. You know, likewise on cattle, again, they're looking for muscle quality. That's where we diverge, or muscle quantity, I should say. We we look more at muscle quality. You know, there's nothing better to me when I 
see one of our packages of beef and I see uh, a high degree of marbling. Uh, that just, you know, makes my taste buds water. So they're, they're much different animals. You look at our cattle and I'll tell people left and right that our Wagyu or Wagyu crosses are some of the ugliest animals on the, on the planet. But when they hit your plate, they're some of the most beautiful steaks. So not the same for a show animal. Those are going to be big steaks, but tend to be lean and lacking in marbling. So not always, but tend to be. Yeah, all that intramuscular fat, that's what you're wanting, that, that marbling. It, even just thinking about it gets me kind of hungry. <laughs> <laughs> yep, and, and then, there, you know, there's, I always joke with the judges that, you know, if it's not black, it doesn't place. And, you know, that, that has nothing to do with muscle quality, but right. it's not very often in the show ring that you see something that's not black. Mm-hmm. They all want to look like Angus. Right. Yeah. Even if you're if you're another continental breed, they still want they still want it to have a black color. In fact, that that kind of brings up a good point. I'm always sharing with my students the certified Angus beef program doesn't always mean it's an Angus cow. It just has to be black coat and a certain size and meet certain requirements, and then it's certified Angus beef, <laughs> which kind of blows their mind. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they should be 50 percent Angus, but beyond that, they could be anything else. And They've got to have an IFM or intermuscular fat score that mm-hmm. takes them into that choice area. But you're right, it doesn't have to be an Angus. And and you guys talked about artificial insemination. That's something that, that, that I always find fascinating. I ended up taking a couple courses in college and getting, getting licensed in that. At least in the state of Washington, you had to be licensed, but not all states, obviously. But that's something that I think not a lot of people know why or, or the to how you do that. So if you wouldn't mind expanding on that, I'm sure we'd love to hear it. Sure. So that was another thing that I have to blame my wife's FFA instructor for. <laughs> she, they, they sent her off to AI school. And when we got into cattle, she was pregnant. So she told me she couldn't do it. So she <laughs> talked me through it. And I had no clue what she was talking about. But sure enough, the next year, by some dumb luck, we ended up having a calf. And ever since then, I've kind of been the AI technician for our farm. My son was his prior service. He and I are, well, both veterans. But when he was stationed in Colorado, my daughter and he went to some artificial insemination schools. They learned. And somehow the one guy on the farm who's never been formally trained is still the AI technician. <laughs> so that's the story behind our artificial insemination. But we AI or artificially inseminate both the cattle and the swine. I've talked some other people through it and hopefully taught them well enough that they've had some success. But in the cattle, it does require a rectal palpation where you're manipulating the cervix to move a straw through that cervix and deposit the genetic material on the anterior side of the cervix or in the uterus. And you have to time that when they're ovulating. We use timed AI methods where you use some hormones to bring them into heat. You can do it on a natural cycle. Unfortunately, my full-time job that pays the bills doesn't give me the time to always breed on a natural cycle. So Mm -hmm. we tend to use a timed AI regimen. And then we use what's called, uh, now I just forgot it, (laughs) stickers that we put on their back. Oh, yeah. They're the color. And when another cow mounts them, 
when they're in standing heat, that turns to another color. We typically use orange. And when that turns orange, then we're inseminating typically about 12 hours later. And, and we do a two insemination technique where we do the first one 12 hours after see them in standing heat. And then 12 hours later, we inseminate them again. And then typically we'll wait three weeks if anyone else comes into heat or back in heat. So the first round failed, we'll hit them with artificial insemination again. And a few days after that, we turn our cleanup wool out with them so that we make sure the cows are bred. And every once in a while, that poor guy gets to earn his keep. But last year, I think we had two calves out of our cleanup wool. The year before, I don't if I believe, or if I remember correctly, I don't think we had any. So the poor guy just gets to walk around and eat all year and not do his job. <laughs> he's um, he's the backup. Yeah, maybe he's happy that that's all he does. But when when he gets to do his job, he seems to be pretty happy with that too. Yeah, you know, on swine, it's a little bit different. The system's much smaller, so there's no rectal palpation. It's just the use of an insemination rod that's put into their cervix, and then typically that cervix locks down on on the insemination rod and you deposit the uh, genetic material. You can also use either natural cycles on that or or timed AI as well. And, you know, other than that, it's kind of a technique of just knowing what you're feeling for in both, you know, and experience is really what, what breeds success, I think. Yeah, I I think there's it's one of those things that seems a little bit a little bit of an art, a little bit of a science, but it does take a lot of practice and and just kind of observations really. I think folks understanding standing heat. I remember on the dairy farm we used uh, chalk, and it's more of like a waxy crayon than chalk. But yeah, you know we we would notice that just similar to those those pads. I can't remember the name of them either. But yeah, you you That's see, hey, that cow's not moving as others are trying to mount her, and these are typically female cows that are on dairy time you know, mounting each other, and it just wipes off, and you say, okay, she's she's ready. Yeah, yeah, it's we use Estratex. There's a lot of different brands out there that they use, and you know, almost every breed or every species has something. I mean, the, with the sheep and and goats, they've got some harnesses you put on a castrated male or a gomer, let them in with the females, and, and he'll mark the females when they're in heat. Females tend to mount each other too, so that's a good way. I mean, some people who have enough money in a big enough operation, I've heard of them having gomer bulls that are castrated. We just let the females kind of do their job. Pigs will do the same. Females will mount them. So just watching them morning and night is the other big thing. Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of universal. About first thing in the morning and, and when things cool down in the, the evening is when most of them come into heat, or at least they exhibit it. And yeah, folks, if you're just joining us, this is your host, Cody Buse, for Ag Matters Radio. We've got Steve Rice on the line, 907 Livestock up there in North Pole, or uh, just outside of Fairbanks. Um, you alluded to it, but folks might be wondering, well, why do you do AI? And I think you've you've definitely touched on it with talking about the, the Wagyu and your genetic lines, but what can you tell us about the whys of doing that? Uh, our, I mean, there's always a lot of reasons, but for us, the two prevailing reasons is there's more selection. I can go through and choose from hundreds, if not thousands of bulls and hundreds of of, uh, boars on the swine side of things. 
and find those traits, which is the second reason, those genetic traits that I'm looking for, which then correlates into a faster genetic turnover. So if, you know, being here in Alaska, it's kind of expensive to bring in new breeding stock. So I can take our existing breeding stock and over less generations, move them in, in the direction that I'm looking for. And, you know, it's just cheaper for me to buy a bull that I can breed through artificial insemination. That bull's going to cost me tens of thousands of dollars. A straw from that very same bull costs me 30, maybe $50. If I want to go world class, you know, maybe a hundred dollars on the boar side, you know, we're talking a hundred dollars a straw and I get 12, 14 piglets out of it to get that same boar again, tens of thousands of dollars. So it's just economical. It creates a faster genetic turnover and there's just more selection out there by shipping in a couple straws rather than shipping in an entire animal. Yeah, and then you have the, it's, I mean, you have a clean-up bull is what it sounds like, but you know, the liability, you know, you've got this really expensive animal and it goes down and then the maintenance of that animal. Yeah, you're right. It makes a lot of sense to just stick with, you, you get the genetics for a much more reasonable cost. Exactly. And, you know, I don't have, I do keep a clean-up bull because an open cow is pretty expensive and mm-hmm. I don't have enough that I can afford to cull a bunch of cows because they didn't get bred. But, but uh, yeah, I'd much rather they eye, and that's why we do two cycles of, of artificial insemination before we turn out a, a bull is because we value the, that genetic potential that comes from the artificial insemination. Yeah, and this year alone, um, I, I don't know a lot of... Um, cattle producers, so I need to broaden my, my circle of friends, but um, uh, has forage been an issue for you guys this year, or are you in better shape up there? Oh, no. No, it's a major issue this year. I mean, pasture wasn't horrible this summer, but hay, hay was just horrendous. The We only raise cattle, we, so we buy all our forage and all our grains from local producers, and they were just traumatized. Last winter, Actually, December of 21, the interior got hit by a rainstorm right around Christmas, and we had record record snowfall. So our spring came really late, and that postponed the uh, initial growth of uh, the grains and initial growth of the hay. Then everything turned really dry, and then when it was time to harvest, everything turned really wet. And I think you guys down there in the Matsu had some record rains all summer long, so you never got to harvest. And yeah, the hay we got, we're fortunate to get enough to last through the summer, but uh, it wasn't a year where you could be picky and it wasn't a year where you're going to save money, that's for sure. Yeah, okay. Sounds like that's statewide for sure then. It, it was, in my words, it was a disaster mm-hmm. um, this year, that's for sure. It will make future years look better, won't it? <laughs> well, there's a good perspective on it. <laughs> well, we've got a couple minutes left. Any other, th- well, I'm thinking about your unique experiences in it that you, you've had up there. What can you share with someone who maybe wants to get into the business and at, in some way? You know, just, I think it was Sunday, I got a phone call from someone out of Pennsylvania who, who wants to move to Alaska. 
and just wanted to know some of what it takes to do agriculture in the in this state. I think there's a lot of potential in this state. There's a lot of market to be realized, but there's a lot of challenges. You know, we talked about the weather challenge. We talked about logistics of bringing uh, anything into this state, whether it's a, a mature animal or a straw of semen, whether it's feed, availability, et cetera. It's all a challenge financially, uh, logistically, et cetera. But I think it's doable. The one thing I, I talk to fellow farmers about is I don't think we're at a stage where we need to see each other as competition. Mm-hmm. There's plenty of market to go around. Uh, we don't have to step on each other's toes. We kind of work within our own little niches. And, and that's why we started going with, with Wagyu. Is It was a niche that wasn't really being addressed. And we're small enough that I can't compete with the larger producers. They produce a good quality at a lower price than I can produce. So with the price premium that it takes for me to produce an animal, I really need to increase that that quality and move into a a niche that wasn't available. So I think anyone who wants to go into it just has to be open-minded, kind of look at the totality of agriculture and and where they can fit in. I think there's a lot of potential with regenerative agriculture, cover crops, et cetera, that traditionally haven't been utilized up here. And I think they they can really offer some great potentials, you know, like hay production. Uh, if you're able to feed your animals in close proximity where you produce your hay, I think there's a lot of potential with silage. Uh, but it's something that we largely have not utilized in this state. Uh, but, you know, if you're cutting and not having to dry it as much, if you can silage it at a higher uh, moisture level, I think we'll have greater success than, than trying to dry hay all, all fall off. So, you know, anyone who wants to get into it, I think being creative and open-minded is, is are uh, definitely traits that can go uh a long ways for them. Well, great. Thank you for being on the program today. I think that's uh, a really good advice, and I, I appreciated your perspective and your experience that uh, you brought to us today. And we, we wish you a, a better forage season this upcoming season, and and I hope good things come your way. Oh, thanks a lot, Cody. It's been a real pleasure, and uh, thank you for everything you do with our youth and uh, promoting agriculture in the state. You bet. Well, thanks for being on the program again today. And I, I as a parting thought, um, uh, does your daughter, Michaela, does she work in Juneau as a staffer? Is that correct? She, she does. She does. Okay. Well, we're going down for food security next week. And I think I remember seeing her there last year with some of the Farm Bureau members. So we'll have to say hi to her again as we visit. Please do. Tell her her, uh, her daddy says hi. But uh, All right. <laughs> she makes us proud, but... Don't let her know that. I told her that politicians <laughs> bring shame to the family. <laughs> well, good. We'll say hi to her down there as we as we stump for agriculture with our legislators. Thanks again. All right. Thank you again, and have a good day. You too. Bye. You've been listening to Ag Matters, covering positive agriculture stories from across Alaska on Big Cabbage Radio. Ag Matters is a production of Radio Free Palmer, recorded at our studios in Palmer, Alaska. 
For more information about this program, email manager at radiofreepalmer.org.